It's June 8th, 2019, and welcome to the Ozark Folk Center and Ozark Islands Radio. Evie Layden, howdy, Edie. Hi. Howdy, Evie. <laughs> Happy Edie. to be here. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so I, I noticed uh, here just a few minutes ago some interesting coincidental meetings today, huh? Yeah. About the, the only people I ever knew that lived in Mountain View happened to be backstage <laughs> practicing. Right. That's uh, and, Samuel uh, Blake. There you go. And uh, and they were playing a tune that I recognized off of a record from San Francisco that my bandmate Eric Pearson is in the band Cricket Jades. And I didn't think the version they were playing was real common. And turns out that they were huge fans of this Bay Area old time band. The Crooked Jades and and brought that music here to Mountain View and they play everything they've ever heard. So it's just an amazing confluence of spirit here. Isn't that neat? Yeah, I love it. And um, and then you met Grandpa Jones's son, Mark. Uh huh. Boy, there's all kinds of amazing things going on. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Um, so we were talking earlier backstage, and I think it bears to mention uh, we cross paths, although sort of unwittingly to you, I guess, at the Folk Alliance a few years ago, and you were playing the Smithsonian Song Challenge, which is kind of a neat concept, but mm -hmm. you sort of remarked, well, gosh, you know, this is, you know, not a whole lot going on here today, but turns out those things bear fruit down the road, don't they? It's true. Uh, one time at a conference, I was playing a very lonely showcase at about 2.30 in the morning, but the only people in the room were Cloud Moss, who books the Kate Wolf Festival, and he booked us that year, and Rosalie Sorrells, who's a really uh, well-known folk singer who's since passed on. And so it was in very honored company here. I was thinking it was going to be a... I just feel like that's the way the music business works. You know, there's the business and the industry side, but then there's the real people side. And I'm glad that I work in folk music and in a real participatory way. And and uh, you just never know how you're going to touch and reach people. And so far, I've got enough positive feedback to know I'm moving in the right direction. That's good. Yeah, I know I was out west doing some shows with somebody one time, and we did a rinky-dink little club in the Bay Area somewhere. And I thought it was kind of a stinker gig, you know, not a whole lot of folks mm -hmm. were there. But the next thing you know, uh, we got invited to open up for Buddy Guy at the Fillmore. Wow. So just never know. You just never know. That's <laughs> why you always give it your best no matter what you think about what's going on. That's right. Because as you were saying, the, the part where you get to get up in front of people and play is the smallest part of the job. There's so much preparation and contracting and writing emails anymore and phone calls and especially miles traveled and plane tickets booked and all of that. So when you actually get to be up in front of people, no matter who's there or what the situation is, that's your time to shine. And that's the part that's it's the best. So you're part of um, sort of alluded to this earlier uh, Small but mighty, maybe we could call it a sisterhood of uh, musicians and dancers. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about April Virtue's been here mm -hmm. and uh, Aubrey Atwater. Uh, a few years back, we had a young girl called um, Heidi Klug, who's oh, yeah. a fiddler. And boy, was she tearing it up yeah. uh, as a dancer, too. Mm -hmm. And so I asked this of April, and I was sort of intrigued by Heidi uh, your choice of footwear. So you don't have on specific dance shoes. You've just got on some low-cut boots. Well, I do, actually, because these are resold with leather. 
And when I, for many years, I danced with a dance company called Rhythm and Shoes, and we danced in tap shoes and Irish shoes and English wooden shoes and all that kind of stuff. It's always about the footwear. And uh, I always used to perform in tap shoes. And when I played uh, for many years with an all-gal old-time band called the Stairwell Sisters out in the Bay Area, I wore my tap shoes um, so that it really cut through the sound of the band. But now our band is a trio, and my partner, Keith Terry, he does a lot of body music, body percussion. And in order to blend sonically with what he's doing, I wear leather-soled shoes. So I find some good shoes that fit me well, but inevitably I'm going to have to resole them because they don't really make leather-bottom shoes very much anymore. Um, and even still, <laughs> these boots that I'm wearing, I've probably had for about 30 years, and I just keep resoling them and resoling them. I keep thinking they're going to die because they've got holes and they're creased and they're kind of falling apart, but they fit me so well. And once you have, you know, especially ask any dancer or anybody really, but once you have your favorite pair of boots, they're worth resoling. They are, I know. So leather-soled shoes, and they make a nice, you know, it fits with the acoustic sound of our instruments and again, like while I do dance and play at the same time, uh, but most of the time in this band, it's a we're switching instruments around and all of that. What was your inspiration for learning that sort of dual style? Uh, which dual style? Well, meaning singing or uh, playing and dancing, sort of simultaneously. <laughs> well, I mean, I've always I've always danced, and I actually considered myself a dancer first and foremost. But I actually was uh, got hit by a car uh, on my bicycle when I was about twenty. And uh, broke my leg up pretty bad. And um, so it limited the extent to which I could take my dance career. That being said, I started playing banjo when I was about eight years old. And I've always played for fun. And I've always written songs, too. So my first career out of uh, college was mostly as a dancer. And I would play and sing and all that for fun. And then uh, when I moved out to California... Um, I, there there weren't that many rhythm percussive dancers and I also knew like I couldn't really be in a real competitive environment just because there was some physical limitations on what I could do and so I started playing a lot more music and I fell in almost immediately with the group that became the Stairwell Sisters and so I always dance in a show and it's funny I always start off a show with dancing because it just helps me relax and kind of arrive to the moment and I used to think that playing and singing and dancing all at the same time was just a party trick. And then I realized, oh, it's a really good party trick. And it's something that people are actually really impressed by. So I feel like if I can do it, I should. Kind of like John Hartford, but we kind of take it to the next level. Because he just had this little shuffle step that he did. I mean, I'm not as good of a musician as John Hartford is, but I'm a better dancer. So it all balances out in the end. <laughs> there you go. Now, uh, you live in Oakland now, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, you grew up on the East coast sort of baltimore jersey yeah new york i would say the mid-atlantic seaboard because i was born in new york city we lived in new jersey we moved to baltimore my mother had moved back to new york city so we kind of bounced back and forth for a while and then uh when i was a teenager my sister relocated to southern indiana to bloomington indiana and then that became my home for a while and uh my father retired there so that's kind of home so mm. it's kind of funny that like when i go home i go to indiana interesting um, not much of our family's on the East Coast anymore, but that whole, you know, I say uh, east of the Mississippi and uh, in, a, in a wide swath. And especially if you play old time music, everybody finds each other 
you know, we once, uh, not that long ago, we had a party in our house and there were people playing music all over the house. And our mechanic that, that we'd had for a long time, he came, he was at the party and he said, wow, you all should start a subculture. And I said, well, you're looking at it. like, <laughs> And I know that all over the country you can find pockets of people who play old time music. And inevitably there are people who say, oh, people don't do that anymore. But they do. They're all out there. It's just that with old time music, it's so much a participatory thing that a lot of times people are just doing it in their houses. They get together with other folks. So you don't always see it out in public. And, you know, bluegrass was sort of the performance branch of old time music. And things have really moved and changed in that time. And old time music is my base. But I, like I said, I've been writing songs for a long time. I've always lived in urban areas. Um, much as I love, especially this time of year, just I got to get out into the woods, uh, spend some time in a tent and just sitting around picking and playing. But our uh, my songwriting really spans the gamut. It, you know, I can play things that sound much more indie, um, but I compose a lot on the banjo. And I always like bringing it back home or taking it to different audiences. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the songwriting aspect of things. Um, a lot of... <clears throat> depending on what term you use, old time, traditional, whatever. Um, I don't see a whole lot of folks who necessarily uh, write new material in that genre. Usually it's uh, there's sort of the, the long list of tunes that sort of get, I don't want to say recycled, but that mm -hmm. folks play a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. you hear a lot of similar songs, which is fine. That's not a, a, a commentary on the bad side of things. Uh, but it's I don't always hear folks who write new material in the old time style. There was mm -hmm. a lady who was here a few years ago called uh, Hannah uh, Hannah Naiman. Oh, She's yeah. from Canada. Canada. Oh boy, and she just writes mm -hmm. some gorgeous songs, and they sound like old songs. old time songs. Mm -hmm. I joke that old time music has a 300 word dictionary. <laughs> All the verses get recycled in different ways. And um, I mean, I seem to write on more contemporary topics. Um, I find that one of the ways that I it's not really in the old time tradition, but as I've written, as my repertoire has really expanded, I've noticed that I do a lot of mashups where the instrumental sections of the song pull in old time tunes and take you down that road. But the words uh, either are more contemporary topics or just timeless topics. Um, but it's such a great foundation uh, for jumping off of. Yeah, it is. No, you're 100% right. So <clears throat> I was looking, uh, as I do a lot of times, at social media posts and stuff like that, uh, just to kind of find some interesting topics to discuss. And we're you and I are born right around the same year. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you were one of the posts was you know, sort of the narrow specter of the our generation mm -hmm. uh, and Gen X, Gen X, right? Mm -hmm. And then you know we were sort of the last folks who used uh, rotary and dial tone <laughs> phones and VCRs yeah. and things like that. Uh, the last non tech generation yeah. uh and we grew you, up kind of left to our own devices too right? with no parents around <laughs> looking out over us i want to ask and you might have some other comments on this but i'm curious uh the music 
you know, the music of the 70s and 80s, when I say that, like popular pop music mm-hmm. that we would have heard on the radio mm-hmm. growing up as kids. Um, it was did you real go, electronic. Yeah, well, yeah. It, some of it was, yeah. yeah. But even the 70s, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I'm, I'm wondering what of that time, if at all, is still relevant to you? And do you go back and listen to it? Or was that just something you breeze through in your youth and you don't revisit much? Um Pop music, I mean, I think more of like 80s pop music when I was in high school. Um, it's funny that you say that because there's a an early 90s R&B tune that was super popular called You Gotta Be. And we've recently revisited that. And that's one of those examples of a song that we, we sing. And it's a mashup with an old time tune called Hunting the Buffalo. And uh, it's a, I love it when I pull it out. People, a lot of people are like, oh, I remember that song, you know, so I know a lot of old songs and I love classic country music and early country music. And I think like I grew up with this real range of roots music that, you know, I'm not a staunch traditionalist. And I know when you're in the source, when you're closer to the South, people tend to experiment, you know, they can experiment more with it or be more inclusive of other ideas. And whether it's, you know, Cajun or country music or bluegrass or old time, to me, it's like all of the same similar roots music. You know, it's sort of like an Anglo roots music, as it were. I mean, it's not uh, too specific like that, but um, just as it's developed more in Anglo culture than in black culture or other cultures. And um, I feel like I have, like I said, an urban sensibility and I like a lot of different stuff. I like funk music and I like um, going out, you know, couple dancing to, uh, you know, Brazilian fojo music or, you know, we've traveled all over the world. And I find I'm often an ambassador uh, with Appalachian music because I don't know if this is quite what, what you were asking, but um, when I travel outside the country, a lot of people don't know that there is a traditional music in America because they get fed a lot of American pop music. So um, oddly, inside the country, people don't really consider me a real traditionalist. But outside the country, here I am representing it and teaching people about it and bringing my banjo and showing them flat foot clogging and teaching Southern Appalachian harmony singing Carter family stuff. And I do a lot of teaching and facilitating in that way. But in my own music... I do really like experimenting and I pull from my experience or the experience of what's going on in the world or politics or nature, or things like that, or just like common human themes, um, which is, I feel like what country music is, it's telling stories. And the old time music was that too. You know, it's like, I can sing all those songs about coming across the ocean, you know, to a new place. But it's been a while, (laughs) you know, those were people, you know, singing of their experience. And so we should all be singing about our experiences. And I love carrying the banjo forward. And I also feel like I do a lot of um, actually when I was when I was a teenager, um, I got really bit by uh, someone had done uh, Stefan Senders had who's a great banjo player had done ethnomusicology research in Ghana West Africa and he came back to fiddle and dance camp and taught us some African rhythms and this light bulb went off and I was like oh this is like you know so much the found obviously the foundation of the banjo and I studied a lot about Africa when I was in college because to me here's a place where 
music and dance is a part of social communication. And so much of my career, the education part of it has been telling people about, you know, they say, oh, this is Irish and that's African. I was like, there's something that happened in the American South that's a product of this really unfortunate history, cultural history. And it's really difficult to deal with. But as always, art is the best thing that comes out of it. You know, art that comes out of pain and comes out of struggle and comes out of conflict. And that American traditional music, that's what that is. You know, they were not happy times and they were not easy times. And I feel like we can all relate to having difficult times. And so bringing people to really understand the multicultural roots of this music, because it's become so associated more with white culture as it's traveled forward. Um, and uh, my partner, Keith Terry, who plays uh, bass, he is, you know, he was trained as a jazz drummer and he has studied tons of world music. And so that's that was kind of where we met in that we both dance and bring out the percussive dance elements of the music. And so I love that I can bring an old song and the way he plays it on the bass or sometimes he plays cajon or sometimes he's doing percussive dance body music. The, the rhythms really speak to me as connecting with the roots of this music, where it comes from, and hopefully where it's going. Wow. You, it's almost as though you read my questions. Off my page. <laughs> I know, I kind of took a tangent. No, no, out there. <laughs> that's perfect because A, I was going to ask you about traveling overseas mm -hmm. and sort of what, uh, when you're in a foreign country, and like you said, you're playing traditional American music. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of folks, they're, you know, like you say, they're thinking about Britney Spears or Madonna or mm -hmm. Taylor Swift or, you know, whatever. Or there's stereotypes of this music from, you know, there's a yeehaw, yeah, you right. know, like all this, um, you know, I don't know. I just, I really like bringing them back to the, the roots of it. Yeah. So I'm wondering what sort of, um, there's all, <clears throat> there's, it's, you can always find a thread a connection somewhere, especially when you're traveling somewhere else. Sometimes you just have to look a little harder mm -hmm. for it. I, for example, I was just in Switzerland. I was eating dinner in a restaurant and I heard some yodeling. Uh -huh. And then the next song, it was, you know, just kind of background music. And then the next tune, it was like harmonized yodeling, oh, wow. which I had never heard. Uh -huh. Then it, then it was just so clear to me how that worked its way into what Jimmy Rogers did mm -hmm. and later country music and how those influences from Europe. I mean, obviously, there was nobody yodeling mm -hmm. uh, in the early days of the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, that <laughs> had to come. Well, I mean, but it had to come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty obvious where it came from. So uh, those threads and those connections often reveal themselves in subtle ways. Here's one that I love because I mentioned Brazilian fojo, which is not commonly known in this country necessarily. But I was in Brazil and someone took us to a fojo dance and it was accordion and triangle and then percussion and bass. And it was an old style fojo. And I was like, this sounds like Cajun music. It sounds like Zydeco music, but with this, you know, Brazilian more percussion, Especially different kind of triangle. polyrhythms. Exactly. The accordion and the triangle. And then... And I believe this story to be true because I've heard it enough. But they said that um, on the sugar plantations, they would get musicians from Louisiana to come down to Brazil to entertain. And they said the 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 
music that they would play for the workers, they would hang up a sign that said for all. And it became foro, which is F-O-R-R-O. And so the accordion and the triangle and all these tunes that came from Louisiana, which in itself was a mix of a number of different cultures, um, then traveled to Brazil and became a whole new kind of music. And really, if you dig deep enough, nothing is pure. And everything, all music and dance is has these influences from, you know, basically politics and culture clashes. And like I said, art is a beautiful thing to evolve from all of that. And I am so grateful to be a little part of that thread. Yeah, that's a great story. So the Brazilian dance and then some traditional Cajun style. Crazy. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you also touched on uh, the sort of often overlooked uh, but not unknown uh, basis and roots of African culture and traditional folk music. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Jerron Paxton's mm-hmm. been here a few times. I'm sure you're familiar with him yep. being out in Oakland. And uh, he played, um, just to give me an example, you know, he played uh, Soldier's Joy here mm-hmm. on the gut string banjo and sang as well. Now, it's funny because around here, that Soldier's Joy is a instrumental square dance song. Uh-huh. Nobody necessarily really knows the roots of that song, mm. what it's about. It's just sort of a happy 120 <laughs> beats per minute square dance song. Yeah. Right? And happy then, songs about sad things. <laughs> and then he, he comes in, lays it down on the gut string banjo, starts singing it, and everybody's just sitting there lockjawed like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, I didn't even know there was that side to it. Yeah. Uh, and it's a big, it's it's huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, Dom Flemons here, mm-hmm. the same kind of thing. Uh, sort of, uh, I want to say, enlightening folks a little bit more about mm-hmm. those African influences. And you touched on that in what you were saying earlier. Yeah. And I have to say, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to see so, like, there's a new generation of African Americans coming in and reclaiming this music. And I don't blame them for leaving it behind, but I feel like it takes at least a generation to be removed enough from the pain associated with this kind of music to come back around and say, actually, this music is also mine. And uh, it's really happening in force right now. And I think because the millennial generation is like once removed and they, you know, I'm not saying that racism has been eradicated, but just removed from uh, really strict like Jim Crow laws and that their parents had direct experience with. And so the same thing, a similar thing happened in the tap dance community because there were all these old African-American hoofers who were in vaudeville and they were kind of, you know, tap dance had gone out of style with rock and roll and they were kind of uh, becoming unknown. And there were a bunch of younger, mostly white, mostly women who were enamored of them and their dance style and started creating these tap dance festivals. And this was like in the 70s and 80s. Um, Tap dance festivals and bringing them out and saying, we actually, we want to hear what you have to say. You're incredible. They have all this amazing history and experience. And they kind of carried it forward until finally a new generation, not, you know, 
not to say it was only African-American, but basically when Af- younger African-Americans started claiming the dance form again. And again, this is another the dance form crosses over cultural and racial lines and comes out of the flat foot clogging, which is in itself a combination of, I always say, white, black and brown in the American South. There's the native influence also. And so just to see, I it, I, I know this about the tap dance scene. And then finally, you know, as much as I've been always relating with this, um, especially growing up in Baltimore, too, which is a mostly African-American city, and my high school was, and I was used to being in a minority and because I'm not African-American, and um, but always uh, feeling playing the banjo just really connected to the cultural, to the wide cultural roots of it, that seeing people reclaiming it and coming back to it, I'm so grateful. You know, I feel like it it is uh, it just makes it more interesting. Well, I was talking with Jerron about it. And <clears throat> I mean, there's really no two ways to say it. And there's no pun intended here. But uh, it's a perfect example of how a song like Soldier's Joy has literally been whitewashed mm-hmm. uh, over the years. Mm-hmm. And then to see it sort of reemerge uh, in, in it, with his vision mm-hmm. and to come out, it's just a real treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an it's it, there's a nice uh, to say a renaissance of that uh, among uh, black performers. It's just great to see. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy about it. Yeah. And it <clears throat> for somebody like me who so it was sort of um, you know came up in a blues background. It helps me relate to it even better. Yeah. Uh, because there's a little more soul in it. There's a little mm-hmm. more blues influence in it. It seems a little. For whatever reason, it seems more authentic and pleasing to my ears. And that makes me happy. <laughs> that yeah. makes me happy. Um, so I want to talk about uh, you also, we mentioned at the top of the chat here, and uh, I want to make sure we get a plug in here because you're really hoofing it here over the next few days. Uh, <laughs> you do a lot of workshops, uh, both dance, I assume, and and banjo. Uh, if you would, tell me about, uh, first off, the one uh, that you're going to burn the all-nighter to and you're going to uh, tomorrow. Uh, we're going to the California Bluegrass Association uh, Father's Day Festival and Music Camp. And uh, <laughs> it's funny because, you know, my band's been around for 10 years, and this is the first time that we're invited onto the main stage of what I consider our hometown festival. And I, it's because we're not fully straight up traditional that we use these other influences. And I'm sure that that's why, um, because the, often the farther you get from the source, the more strict people feel about the tradition, but it's a great festival and it's out in the woods and it, before that is a music camp. So we're going to haul on out of here and down to little rock and, uh, get home in time to pack the car and drive three hours up to grass Valley in time for the instructor meeting. And I'm actually teaching old time ensemble, I'll probably teach some flat footing and some harmony singing, and then the band will be on stage, on the main stage on the weekend, and then I'll also call some square dances. So that's one fe- uh, sort of festival and band camp or workshop weekend, mm-hmm. but I know uh, you travel around and do those quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, uh, if folks are interested, you're still doing uh, Peghead online, right? Peghead Nation. 
Yeah, as an online course, I'm the Clawhammer banjo instructor. I have 250 students all over the world. And I feel like I've found a good way to work in that format um, so that you can really play along with someone slowly and really learn. And uh, I've gotten great feedback about so that. So is it, uh, I don't know, I'm not super tech, is it Skype? I mean, no. do you, or how do you, so it's interactive, live? It's not interactive. Okay. I record video lessons and uh, they host it. And, you know, break it down in the A part and B part, and they also create tablature for it. Um, so you can read the tablature, but then there are play-along tracks. Okay. So, you know, if you don't have anybody around you to play with, I always recommend finding a human being to play with. Um, but I think one of the problems, we, we, we live in a very linear culture, and people think they have to get something right before they move forward. Whereas in traditional music, it's really circular. The same thing happens over and over and over again, and you got to listen to it and be around it and do and do and do until you really fall into doing it all together. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, pardon me a second. Uh, so I, I notice cause we do a lot of workshop instrument workshops here, mm -hmm. and I notice a lot of people sort of play and or practice in a vacuum, meaning it's just them and. Um, or they play something one time through, they're like, all right, I got that. Yeah, well, yeah. And I mean, it, <laughs> that's yeah. not making music to me. Making music is playing it for 20 minutes. You know, you really get into the rhythm of it. You're playing with other people, you get a groove going on. It's all about the groove, Isn't it? you know, because then you're right. transported. That's exactly right. It's so, like the runner's high. You yeah, know? yeah, that's a good example. Mm -hmm. That's a good analogy. So that's Peg, what's it called? Peghead Nation. Okay, Peghead Nation. So check that out. Yeah, I scrolled through that just real quickly and saw, I mean, you've got a lot of great tunes on there that you cover at different levels. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of good uh, classic old-time claw hammer repertoire. So yep. it's worth checking out. Um, let's see. Okay, I've been at, this is the last thing I want to ask you. I've been... Every year when we do this radio show, I try to come up with just kind of an off-the-wall question. Uh, <laughs> uh oh <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I was, and I was talking with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, and so we were thinking about, uh, and this sounds like a sports talk radio question. It's kind of silly, but I was talking about, all right, if I had to put four people on the Mount Rushmore of American oh music. Goodness. All right. So here's what I came up with. Ooh. All right. Uh -huh. uh, I had James Brown mm -hmm. for funk. Mm -hmm. I had Hank Sr. Mm -hmm. uh, for a country, obviously. Chuck Berry as rock and roll. And then uh, Louis Armstrong uh, jazz. So mm. I was trying to sort of look at the four genres and people. I know I don't, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Louis Armstrong, but. Right. So those would be that's that would be my four. Hmm. So you're asking who my four would yeah. be? Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Well, first of all, just because you chose your four, I'm gonna choose four women. The please, yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, well, I gotta go with Aretha Franklin. It's the queen of soul, and um, Mother Maybell. Let's see. I want to come. I want to think of different genres. Yeah, different genres, and you don't hear as much about the women as you do about the men, um, in terms of really being able to make an impact. Well, you could say somebody like you know Billie Holiday, jazz wise. Yeah. Uh, as a singer. Uh, Although one of my favorites in that category would be Etta James. 
She's I guess she's not straight up jazz, but she probably was. I I earlier and, on. and that I put up Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yeah. Big time. Oh yeah. She was such a great guitar player. Or uh um uh who am I thinking of? Uh Memphis Mini. Yeah. Yeah. Right along those lines as well. And what, I mean those are all like older characters. There are some, you know, incredible players and singers. But just in terms of who was able to, you know, to really get out there and make an impact and teach future generations. Yeah. Well, those are all great choices. Yeah. Yeah. It's and it's some it's a fun debate to have. I mean, I always have this with, <laughs> because then you can get it because somebody would say, well, you got, you got to put Jimi Hendrix on there or, you know, something like that. Then we go, OK, well, let's go to the sub genre, the Mount Rushmore of guitar. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Or, you know, drums or, you know, whatever it is. So we always have a good time joking around with that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, also before we and uh, tell me once again, the guys that are playing with you. So uh, Eric Pearson is a, he's an amazing multi-instrumentalist and a great side person. Um, he sings harmony and he plays, mostly plays lead guitar, plays resonator guitar and uh, some banjo. And then uh, my partner, Keith Terry, who um, <laughs> we joke he plays bass out of self-defense because he's a trained drummer. And uh, years ago, he stood up from his trap set and started dancing he was working he he worked with a lot of those old hoofers and they really encouraged him to pursue that style of dancing that he calls body music because it also involves melody and harmony what the voice can do and all that and so we actually met on a dance project um and then he started playing bass with me because out like i said the farther you get from the stores the more strict people are in the tradition and they weren't that keen on the drums that he was bringing into the music i mean he would play cajon which to me is like acoustic drums you know it's not as loud and whatever but um so he's been playing bass and uh he always says he's not really a bass player i said how about if we call it tonal percussion because that really has how he approaches it he's got really interesting ideas and when we're creating music um i i mean it's called my band because i mean i do all the all the grunt work on it but also i come up with the material and i bring it to the band and i do a lot of songwriting and i bring it to the band but i often sit down first with eric uh because keith tours a lot solo uh internationally and eric and i are both at home and i'll bring it at least on this our most recent record caught on a wire um I would bring the songs to Eric and Eric's, uh, you know, trained uh, composer, you know, from from his university training. And so he just has some real interesting chordal ideas and and composition arrangement ideas um, that are outside what I, you know, was coming up with. And so he'll give me some of that information. And then we bring Keith into the mix. And when he comes home (laughs) and. um, And he Keith often has. Uh, some interesting rhythmic ideas and then also I think of it as like you know like the frosting he just like he'll come up with real specific arrangement or timing or uh, harmonic ideas that just kind of tighten it all up so you know I for years I kind of wish that we had changed the name to a band name but um, it is really it is really my band in terms of I'm the front person and lead singer and like I said I do all the all the back end work on it, but musically, um, what comes out is really a product of the three of us. Yeah, I was gonna say, you've got the moniker; it's hard to change. 
It Everybody is hard to knows, change. you know, you spent all that time working under that name, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, yeah. Who's who's the soft shoes? We've never heard of them or whatever. Well, and also I had been in an all gal band, the Stairwell Sisters, for 13 years when I wanted to start doing. I was the only full time musician in that band and I wanted to start my own. So it made sense to start it under my own name. And then once we got rolling, it was, you know, it's just a lot to change a name once you're rolling. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing you were saying was how um, you you mentioned uh, that that festival you're playing at next week or for the first time mm-hmm. <clears throat> i was just there was i was reminded of a song there's this elvis song um called the stranger in my hometown and the lines my old my hometown won't accept me i don't feel welcome here no more mm-hmm. which it's, it seems kind of strange because i mean you were just saying you're the, sort of the outlier in the traditional s- scene mm-hmm. there it's hard for me to sort of fathom that from this viewpoint but mm-hmm. but that's that's the case yeah, I mean, it, I feel like that. I don't, but how you feel isn't necessarily how other people feel about <laughs> it. Well, what's the dividing line? Well, because we are out in California, the people who play traditional music really want to play traditional music. And even though, like, in that realm of traditional music, people incorporate early blues and ragtime, bluegrass. It's funny, I always joke that putting bluegrass and old time together is often like putting deaf and blind together. They really don't <laughs> operate in the world in the same way. They just carry around similar instruments, you know, uh, yeah. and they even sometimes have the same repertoire, but how they jam is different. What they drive is different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all of that. Um, but I also, I love that we live in a really diverse environment and uh, we all need to live in that environment Um, I like the fact that I'm in different communities that don't really know the traditional music community, but they know me and they know me as a banjo player and a clogger even. And I don't know, I just feel like it bridges gaps that, you know, people have a lot of stereotype. We have, um, one of, uh, Keith has a nonprofit called Cross Pulse that, um, basically is, has always operated under rhythm being the connector of cultures and he's always done intercultural projects and so when I moved out uh, to California he brought me into his quintet which is um, everyone's arts come from the African diaspora but you know there's uh, Afro-Venezuelan someone from Venezuela and a um, West African player and African-American spirituals and me with Appalachian and Keith bringing jazz and body music and everybody collaborates on each other's arts And so we bring this, um, now these days we bring it mostly into the schools and these kids see these people from really different cultures communicating with one another. Everyone plays and sings and dances and it's pretty funny too, but like I had all of them doing a square dance, you know, and it's also what gets picked up in popular and commercial culture and that's what most people see and then they feel like that's you know, that's where the music lives or its best representation. But really often the best representation is behind closed doors or really like in a community. And um, there's just been some beautiful crossover. Like uh, on our new record, there's um, there's a, a tune, that a song that I wrote called Mr. Joe, and we did a video for it. And it's it was based on going out to the Eagles Hall in Alameda and the 
the really mixed zydeco scene that's out there. Because in the 40s, a lot of folks moved out, a lot of African-American folks moved out from Louisiana to work in the shipyards out in Oakland and uh, in the oil refineries. It was similar businesses, you know, as they had in Louisiana. And so there was a big influx during uh, the Second World War. And so they brought their Creole culture with them. And so there's a big scene out there. And when I went to make the video, um, the people that I connected with, like some regular dancers out there, included uh, my friend Wilbert McAllister, who is the president of the Black Cowboy Association. And, you know, they... It's so funny because now we have this big hit, Old Town Road, which is like connecting, you know, rap culture with cowboy culture. And there's a whole bunch of people who are like, wait, we've been doing this the whole time. You know, <laughs> it's just, you just don't know. It's not it's not what got picked up by the industry and, you know, sent out, you know, in quantity into the world. But I love finding these pockets of people that we all know that we can connect through music. We can connect through uh, various things about culture and family and um, and dancing together. And I also feel like uh, music and dance is just so intrinsically connected. And over the course of my career, I've seen musicians dance so much less and people dance less together um, that I've kind of made it a mission of mine to teach not only adults, but also to teach children actually how to partner dance in in a healthy way with one another so that I just feel like that nonverbal communication that we have. Everyone talk, talk, talk. Here we are talking. But yeah. <laughs> every, everyone talk, talk, talk. And you hear the news. And, you know, there's just a lot of words flying around. But when the whole th- role of music and dance in a culture is to is to create a healthy culture that even if you have disagreements, and I've always loved this even in traditional music, you have, you know, People who are staunch blue and staunch red, and they're playing music together, and you find that common ground. And when you have that common ground, you're much more likely to get into shades of purple. Mm -hmm. And I really like that space. I like the fact that people who I really would not agree with politically can really get together musically. That's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. And I love that that's, yeah. you know, there, there are places where we can all agree, and that's, where's your downbeat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well said, Evie. Thank uh, you. Look, it's been a real pleasure visiting with you. We're so glad we got uh, to bring you here to Mountain View. So happy to be here. Found some interesting connections. Uh, I really love what you do. Uh, it's, it's unique, and I think you're hitting the bullseye. Uh, don't listen to anybody else. That's what I say. I'm only listening to you from there now on. There you go. All right. <laughs> Continued success. Thanks again. Thank you. <laughs>